Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Women's Bible Study. It is a joy to be with you all this morning. I keep thinking spring is coming and then it gets cold again. Um, so thank you for braving the frigid temps. Um, if you're listening online, it's not frigid. It's maybe 40s, but it feels freezing. Um, so thank you all for coming. Um, I can't believe that we're here um, in chapter 15. There's just one more lesson um, next week, chapter 16, and then we break for spring break um, and then Easter. And then we'll come back the Tuesday after Easter for our end of the year celebration. Um, a quick story to begin in, um, in Psalm 107. It's a beautiful psalm. Um, and it, it's all, there's this, this, this chorus of talking about what the Lord has done for his people, how they fall away and he calls them back, and then they praise him all the more. And so in Psalm 107, 2, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Let the redeemed of the Lord say what God has done. And so this morning, I just want to share a quick story with you to just share what the Lord has done. Um, on Sunday morning in a, the small town of Dublin, Georgia, a little boy, a two-year-old boy named Nathan, was found lifeless in his family's pond. And he is one of my college best friends, her little boy's best friend. So as much as two-year-olds can have best friends. Um, so Katie texted me and called all the prayers up. Anyway, so Nathan was found lifeless in a pond. They airlifted him to Macon, Georgia, um, and on Monday morning, he was fine. So he started by crying when they got him to the hospital, and then he started saying his ma, he said mama and dada, and they were able to comfort him, and by the time Tuesday, Monday morning rolled around, Nathan was acting like himself. And so I share that just to say, look at what the Lord has done. He has rescued this little boy who I'm sure when his parents found him, it's, it's one of my nightmares. It's every parent's nightmare. Um, but I just wanted to share that because I was so profoundly moved by the graciousness of God in this little boy's life. Um, and I don't, on Sunday when Chris was preaching, our pastor Chris, it's an incredible sermon if you haven't if you weren't here on Sunday, I highly recommend listening to it. But he told the story of this man who his house was burning and he didn't have his pants on because he rushed out of the house. And then come to find out, eventually he got his pants back, um, even as the house was falling. And Chris told the story. He's like, I'm not telling this story to say that, you know, there's a reason for everything, right? So I'm not sharing this story about Nathan that the, you know, the Lord had this happen for a reason, but that the Lord redeemed it because we live in the fallen and broken world that water that gives us life actually also can bring death. And so here we see just this beautiful story of how God is merciful to us. And I know that not every child who falls in a pond is rescued, but Nathan was. Um, and I share that as we walk into chapter 15, because this is one of the darkest days, probably the darkest day in the history of all humanity. In the history of the world, this, what we're talking about today, was the darkest day, or so it seemed, as it played out. So let me pray, and we can dive in. 
But as we, as we move into this day, remember the kindness and the mercy of God in Nathan's life. And we share these stories about God's mercy and kindness so that it can remind us when we're waiting for him to work that he is working. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, we thank you for Nathan's life and for your rescue of him. Lord, we thank you for your rescue of us. So Lord, I just pray that you would open our hearts and minds to you this morning as we, as we read this 15th chapter of Mark. I just pray that you would show us more of who you are and how you work. I pray that I would disappear and that you would be made great. Lord, I thank you that when your word is spoken, it does not come back to you void. And that this is the deepest truth today that we can cling to, for our identity is found in it. Amen. Okay, so we are in chapter 15 of Mark. We have, this is lesson 19, I think. We have spent the year moving through this gospel. And from the very beginning, we have been talking about how Mark's whole goal, his whole point, is that we would know that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was crucified for us, that we would know Jesus and know him crucified. And so here we find ourselves in that moment that he has been dragging us towards since chapter 1. Now, I will say that we're in the, in the beginning of chapter 15. It is written, the, the formula for it, the pattern is very similar to chapter 14, where Jesus was before the Sanhedrin. So it's the same pattern as chapter 14, just a different court. So we're going to see the interrogation of Jesus, the condemnation of Jesus, and the mockery of him. In chapter 14, he was persecuted under Jewish law by the Sanhedrin. For blasphemy, which is just ironic. But now we're going to see him being prosecuted under Roman law, under Pilate, for high treason, which is also ironic. So within the, within the Roman court, within Roman rule, within the Roman empire, you did not speak against the emperor. And so high treason, treason was probably one of the highest crimes that you could commit within the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire, they held its land by the sword. They, they used death to hold their empire. And if you threaten the emperor, who they also thought was a deity, if you threaten the emperor, it was the highest crime that you could commit. And so that's also why it's ironic. So if Jesus was being blasphemous when he himself was also fully God, here we have them charging him with high treason when, in fact, he was the true king. And so Mark's main point here with chapter 15 in the beginning is that both the Sanhedrin and the Roman governor had Jesus die as the Messiah through these course of events. So they, they were having him die. So both the Sanhedrin, both the Jewish law, and Roman law were having him die as the Messiah, and the events are going to play out in chapter 15. Of course, Jesus has already told us what the events were going to be. In chapter 10, remember chapter 10, he's talking to his disciples, and in verse 33 saying, he says, see, we're going to Jerusalem, 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes, which is what they will, this is in chapter 14, handed over the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, which is what we're going to see here in 15. So Jesus has already told them this would happen. Verse 34, and then they will mock him and spit on him, flog him, which is whip him, and then kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So he has told them everything that was about to happen. So let us begin. In chapter 15, verse 1, it says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. So this is the whole Jewish council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So what's interesting here is that Mark is telling us little parts of Roman culture in the Greco-Roman world and in, in the Jerusalem proper. So apparently Pilate's day, so Pilate as this ruler, he would only do business early in the morning. So if the Sanhedrin did not bring Jesus early in the morning, if they came at lunchtime, Pilate was probably going to be at, at the banquet table or at the spa or doing something else very Roman and kingly. And so they had to come in the morning in order to catch him in his so, quote-unquote office hours. So as soon as it's morning, they, they bring Jesus to Pilate and Pilate asked Jesus, he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the chief priests accused him of many things. The chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him again, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. So within the Roman court, if you were silent, that was consenting to your charge. Right? So here's Jesus, the most innocent one who's probably ever stood. In fact, he is. He's the most innocent one who's ever stood before Pilate. And he was silent against all of these charges that the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, were throwing towards him. And so we see here, we see here that he is being charged. They're trying to catch him with, with spiritual, with, with this Messiah issue but they have, to have, they have to say something in order to make it a capital offense. Pilate didn't care for the Jewish people. He found them annoying. He thought their rules were silly. And so the Sanhedrin bringing Jesus before Pilate, complaining that he's talking about being the Messiah, Pilate wouldn't have cared. But notice here that they use the phrase king of the Jews. Suddenly, every Roman official's ears would perk up at this. They're talking about treason. They didn't say he's claiming to be the Messiah. They said, oh, he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, the very thing that the Romans didn't want anyone claiming, because who was in charge but the emperor? And so suddenly they, were, they had him. So for all of the things that the Jewish council was upset about, they were catching him on this capital offense. Verse 6. Now at the feast he used to be now at, at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So notice here 
he was, he had committed murder, but he was probably in jail more likely because of the insurrection, which would have also been treason. And the crowd came up and again and began to ask Pilate to do as she usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So this title has been put upon Jesus. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief of priests had delivered him up. So Pilate understood what the priests were doing. He knew that this man was just an annoyance to the Jewish people. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Now, when, when we think about this scene, right? So, and what Mark has done throughout his whole gospel is that he's shown us that there's this physical battle going on, but that there's also this spiritual battle. Remember, all throughout the gospel, we've seen Jesus come against the dark forces. In fact, they were the first ones to say who he was because the enemy definitely knew who he was. But in this crowd, I can just envision the priests almost overcome with their darkness, stirring up the crowd. And if we could see the way that the Lord sees, if we could see the spiritual realm, those dark spirits would have been all throughout this crowd. This is demonic speak here. They are stirring up this crowd into this deep hatred of who Jesus was. And so they stirred up the crowd, and, they, and he, they got the crowd to call for Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? Right? Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, the Roman official who would condemn men to be crucified on the regular, the crowd calls for Jesus to be crucified, and even Pilate is asking, why? What has he done? Pilate knows that he's innocent. So Pilate however, wishing to satisfy the crowd, because that was the other side of the Roman Empire. They held it in an iron grip, but they also wanted peace always, right? And so they used terror and crucifixion and hard laws to keep the people at peace, but they also were very good at giving the locals the little things that they wanted in order to keep the peace. We're going to rule harshly, But we're also going to kind of give you what you want so that everybody's happy. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released to them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivers him up to be crucified. Now this is slightly different. Um, Oftentimes, so crucifixion was the main main execution, the main way for punishment when it came to treason. Scourging in and of itself was a punishment. Oftentimes, the, the prisoner did not survive a scourging, and this is well, scourging it would, would be to be whipped. And so often in other places, they talk about the cat of nine tails. And so the whip that they used would have had long strands of leather with bone or iron or shell attached to it, and they would whip the prisoner within inches of their lives. 
And so Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. And they, they talked about how in the historians of the day talked about how often times people would be whipped so much that you could see their insides or you could see their bones. It ripped their flesh off of their bodies. And so this is the state. So Pilate hands him over, has him scourged, and then sends him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. This is inside the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. And they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. Not true homage, but mocking him. And when they had mocked him and they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. So even here we see this added. So he was scourged first, and then they mocked him all the more after he had been whipped. This was special treatment for a special prisoner. They did not do this to everyone. This was for Jesus. And what we see here is just this beautiful, and this is where if we walk away from this year with learning one thing, one thing for our lives and one thing for our walks with the Lord, it is that all of scripture is telling one story. And from Genesis 1, God is telling us the same story all the way through Revelation. And so here they crown him with the crown of thorns. And we see the beginning of the curse being righted. Because when did thorns appear but in Genesis 3? And Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned and John, and, and John God was speaking, speaking the curse over Adam and Eve. Within the curse, it talks about the thorns that spring up from the ground. And so here we see the crown of thorns placed on Jesus' head before he goes to die in order to kill the curse, as far as the curse is found. And so we see these whisperings of that promise in the middle of this terrible, terrible day. And I'll be honest, yesterday as I was reading through, I mean, because we talk about the crucifixion, right? Like we know that Easter's coming we know, like, we've all seen the tracks about how you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Jesus came and he died for us. It's such watered-down language in today's culture, Christian culture, that we can just talk about it. But yesterday I was sitting in the mess and the terror of what crucifixion really was. And I, I was ill. Like, I got up from my desk and felt ill for, for half the day thinking about the realities of what he went through on this day. Truthfully, the death by crucifixion, it was the cruelest, most degrading form of punishment. We still see it within our English language today. The word excruciating comes from it. It helped keep public order because this was, if you went against the Romans, this is what happened to you. Jesus' death was not important 
it was normal as far as the Romans were con considered it. It, was, it happened all the time. So he was just another guy who committed treason who was being crucified. It was a normal thing to happen. Normal thing to happen. And we know from Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is a man who hangs on a tree. So even within God's law, so within, within Jewish law, they would have, the, the man hung on the tree would have been killed before, right? He would have died before, but his body would have been hung. Cursed is a man who is hung on a tree. So the Sanhedrin wanted him to die as one cursed by God. That is how much they hated him. They wanted him to die a covenant breaker's death. What you and I know is the irony of ironies. Because once again, he was the only innocent person to ever stand before Pilate. And in fact, to ever walk the earth. And so they go, and they, they um, verse 20 Moving to 21, when we move into the crucifixion, we're shown how, how much he had been beaten. So oftentimes, prisoners carried their own crosses, to be, carried their own cross beams to be crucified. However, Jesus had been scourged before. He had been whipped before. And their whole goal is that the torment would last as long as possible. So had they made somebody in Jesus' state walk with their cross, they might have died on the way there. And so their whole goal, and we're going to see this later on in this chapter, their whole goal is to make him suffer longer. So they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming into the country, in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, I love how Mark tells his stories. So he is writing to Christians in Rome, and so that's another reason why some of the details, there are details, but some details of this are left out because they would have been very familiar with the process of crucifixion. This would have been, as I said, this was not an important thing. It was a normal death. It happened normally. But how he talks about Simon of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, the thought is, is that these were two men in the early church. And so that he's saying, this is Alexander and Rufus's dad. He's the one who carried Jesus's cross. So whoever Mark is writing to, it is thought that they knew who Alexander and Rufus were because this was their dad. So they got Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. The place of the skull. And this is another, another place where... Just the beauty of God's story and the beauty of his scripture is shown. So Golgotha was right outside the city gates, right outside where the temple was, on the temple mount, on the mount of Jerusalem. And way back in Genesis, so way back in Genesis, Genesis 22, we've talked about this some, but remember I, Abraham and Isaac? So God calls Abraham and he says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to go sacrifice your son on this mountain that I'm going to show you. And so Abraham lifts up his eyes and he sees, and he sees the mountain, it's Mount Moriah. And so he takes Isaac, Isaac meaning laughter, he takes his laughter up to this mountain um, 
to sacrifice. And there on Mount Moriah, the Lord provides a ram, right? And so instead of sacrificing Isaac, his laughter, his son, he sacrifices the ram. We'll move forward to 2 Chronicles 3, when Solomon is beginning to build the temple, right? To build the house of the Lord. It says in 2 Chronicles 3 that the Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And we know that the temple, that was the place where the Holy of Holies was, where the presence of God dwelt, but that was also the place where thousands upon thousands of bulls and rams and lambs were sacrificed daily for God's people so that they could be in right relationship with him, right? And so now here we see Jesus, now we see Jesus being taken and crucified on Mount Moriah, that same place, this final sacrifice, the sacrifice of sacrifices was going to be fulfilled in the same place that God has been providing a way for his people to be in relationship with him since Genesis. And so here on Mount Moriah, this great sacrifice is about to happen. Verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And this is a fascinating thing. So apparently, reputable women of Jerusalem would offer this wine mixed with myrrh, and apparently myrrh had narcotic properties to it. And so when you mixed myrrh with wine, it was a narcotic. And so these women of Jerusalem would often offer this drink to criminals about to be crucified to help with the pain because of how inhumane it was. And so Jesus was offered this narcotic that could have, not completely, but could have helped with the process. And he doesn't take it. So he fully is going to feel what they're about to do. Verse 24, And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, and decided what each would take. Now here, this is where Mark doesn't go into all the details because the people reading this in the first century church would have known, right? But what we don't talk about is that sometimes they were just tied. So sometimes they were just tied with their arms out and their, and their legs. Oftentimes they always put the nail in the heels. But when they really wanted to get somebody up there, they would, they would tie them, but then they would put... They would put the nails through their arms or their hands. And what, what, I, what I miss in this story because of how quickly Jesus dies is that this was a days-long process sometimes to die, especially, especially when they didn't use nails. So if they used the nails, you would bleed out sooner, but you would die of exhaustion and asphyxiation over days. And so here they crucify him, and they, and they put him up. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Now, in this account, there's different hours said. And this is where commentators love to really get down to the nitty-gritty of, is this original to the text? Was this added in? And so I would just say, don't worry about what hour it happened. 
It's about that it did happen, right? And the inscription of the charge against, against him read, the king of the Jews. So they would often put above the criminal what they were charged with. So the king of the Jews. And when they had crucified him, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now what's interesting here is the word robbers, crucifixion was a capital punishment. You had to do something really, really bad in order for this to happen to you. So they probably were robbers, but they were probably something else too. Within the Roman law, robbing, just stealing in the market didn't get you crucified. So these men were under the probably similar charges as Jesus, not for being king of the Jews, but they were causing insurrection. They were going against Roman rule in some way to also be crucified and killed in this way. Verse 29, and when those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself, come down from the cross. And so it's thought here, oftentimes the, the crosses, you know, when we, when we see the pictures of the crucifixion, they're really high up. Oftentimes the crosses weren't very high, like their toes probably could almost touch the ground, which is probably even more psychologically excruciating. The ground would have been right there. If I can just reach the ground, I might be able to help myself. But the thought is, is that they put Jesus up higher to make even more of a statement about him. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him. So everyone's sitting there mocking him, say, to, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And that statement just shows how wrong and off they were. They had absolutely no idea what the Christ really meant. They had all of the old scriptures that talked about the suffering servant and that the servant would give up his life and what, what the, the Messiah truly was. And yet here they're mocking him because he was doing the very thing that they needed him to do. The very thing that God had told them the Messiah would do through all of his word. He was doing it and they were mocking him. And they said, come down from the cross, and now we'll see and believe. And we're going to talk about this more next week in chapter 16, because it's really easy for me, and I don't know about you, to say, well, if I saw this, like if I witnessed this, I'd have nightmares for weeks. But if I witnessed this, then my faith would be so strong. Like if we could have just witnessed his miracles and seen his healings and walked with him, how strong would our faith be, right? Or if we saw him, like if we knew that he was dead, like we obviously, the man died on the cross and then we saw him walking around after the initial shock, surely we would remember, oh, you said you'd come in three days, like, because seeing is believing, right? And the reality is, is that we know that seeing is not believing, right? 
Faith is, is for things hoped for and not seen. And so them saying, if you come down for the cross, we'll believe, they wouldn't have believed, right? Because they had walked with him this entire time. They'd seen him. And their response to him was crucify him. And so just if he'd been able to come down, they wouldn't have believed. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So those who were next to him, they also mocked him. Which I, I can't, it's kind of like, buddy, you're in the same position. Like, you're also about to die. But that's, that's the darkness's response to who Jesus is and who he was. 33, it says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. This is Hebrew, and I'm going to butcher it. Okay? Eloi, Eloi, lemma, sabachthani. Right? Sounds good. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm 22 here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put a reed on it and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And so they did. So in the, in the beginning of this, you think, oh, is this a kindness to give him water? Because they did have a drink. They, they would sometimes give the prisoner something to drink. And in the moment, it was a kindness, but they just wanted to extend his life to see what would happen. They weren't trying to take care of him. They weren't being kind or loving. They were trying to extend his suffering to see if Elijah would come. It was this spectacle. What's going to happen now? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now, this, it sounds dramatic, and it was actually more dramatic than we can imagine because most people who died from crucifixion died while they were passed out. They slowly but surely lost all of their strength and died of exhaustion and or not being able to breathe. And so oftentimes they wouldn't know if the men were dead or not, and so that's why they would break their legs. And if they were still alive, they would come back to consciousness and then die quicker because they couldn't brace themselves anymore with their legs broken. So the fact that Jesus utters this loud cry and suddenly breathes his last, was an, a miracle, but an amazing thing for those watching to behold. It wasn't the normal way that people died while being crucified. It was a violent death, and Jesus was still full of strength. This man, who had been scourged, beaten, mocked, and crucified, died full of strength. He didn't die in his sleep on the cross. He didn't pass out. He didn't lose consciousness. He was aware and with it. And in his strength, he died. He cries out in a loud voice and he breathes his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, because it was an amazing thing to withhold, to see, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So the centurion, the Roman, says, surely this man is the son of God because of the manner in which he died. Now Mark, being this beautiful, incredible literary writer, we see him bookending his gospel with the truth of who Christ was. In Mark 1, at Jesus' baptism, the sky was rendered, rendered, rendered open. Remember, and the, and the Spirit descended down, so the sky was, was opened in two, split in two, and the Spirit comes down. Same wording. It's the same word when it talks about the temple being torn in two. The sky was torn in two, the Spirit comes down, and God's voice says, this is my beloved Son. And then here, upon his death, we see the curtain in the temple splitting in two, and the centurion, a pagan, a Gentile, saying, surely this man was the son of God. The ripping of the temple curtain meant two things. First, it meant two things. First, the separation between God and his people was gone because of what Christ did for us. No longer was there, there have to be the holy of holies. The temple system, all of the sacrifices, he was the final sacrifice. He was the final sacrifice. And then two, it shows us just how, like, he talked about the temple being destroyed, right? And so everyone around is like, well, he said the temple was going to be destroyed. Well, the ripping of the temple curtain is a foreshadowing to eighty seventy when it was destroyed completely. I mean, we've talked about that. And so this is the beginning of the temple being destroyed because Jesus has paved a new way in which Gentiles can also say that he is the Son of God. <clears throat> Verse 40, there were also two women looking from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Hosea and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So this is talking about the throng of women who were there who would have witnessed what happened. They would have witnessed his death. And we're going to see them play a major part, or a part in chapter 16 of the end, in the, in the speaking of that full gospel, because they're the ones who see him first. And in verse 42, he goes on to say, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of council, who was also with him looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body. So what's interesting is, I mean, the, the Romans would leave bodies out for forever, right? They would use, they would use the, the symbol of crucifixion to be like, you need to keep peace and follow our laws and you'll be able to live your lives. But even within Jewish custom and even within that curse of De found in Deuteronomy, cursed is the man who hangs on the tree, even within Jewish culture, they were honorable and showed respect to dead bodies. And so within Jewish culture, they wouldn't have left someone's body up out in the elements all night. 
And what's more, oftentimes the, the families of criminals would come and ask for the bodies. But notice that Jesus' family does not do that. This man, Joseph of Arimathea, takes courage because if you go and ask for Jesus' body, you're connecting yourself to him. So what if the people of Pilate's court had come after Joseph? But notice here, Pilate was surprised to hear, once again, because it was a miracle for how quickly he died. Pilate was surprised to hear that she, he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. This is the man who proclaimed, surely he was the son of God. And when he heard from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to, jo to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapped him in linen, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother, saw, saw where he was laid. So they followed Joseph, and they saw where Jesus was buried. And so see, here we see, we see that the death of Jesus, his crucifixion, we see that he has been taken down and he's buried. Mark is letting us know and letting us sit for the minute in the reality of his death, right? In, verse, in verses 44 and 45, when they're talking about his death, he is referred to as a corpse, right? They don't even say body, they say corpse. It's, it's this term, like he was dead, very dead. And truly in Isaiah 59, it says that your iniquities, so our sins, have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. And so here we see Jesus dying, dying for our sins, that that separation might not be there anymore. Right? The temple curtain has been torn. That separation has been taken away by his death. And so we are three weeks out from Easter, and I kind of love how the calendar just fell into place because we're going to be able, we've talked about his death today, and then next week we're going to see his resurrection, and so you're going to get this full picture going into Holy Week. And so this week, I know you studied it, sit in the end of this chapter, sit in it, think about it. The realities of his crucifixion, the realities of what he went through, what he did, the realities of where he died, that, that final sacrifice on Mount Moriah where God has always provided a way for mercy and grace in life with so much more than just a ram and a bush, he provided his own son. And I think why this is so hard to take is, is that this is the death of God, right? Because he was fully God and fully man. And we can get real heady thinking about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but this was the death of God on that cross. And next week we're going to talk about his resurrection and what that means, but we're also going to see shocking responses to his rising again. The disciples are still going to fumble it. And so my hope is, is that when we go into the Easter week, when we go into that holy week,
that we will be mindful of what is our response to this story. Because all year we have been moving towards this moment. Mark's whole goal in the whole Gospel of Mark is that we would know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was crucified for us and rose again. It's whole, the whole point. And so what is our response going to be to that? How should our lives be lived differently because of this truth that is more real than the chairs you're sitting in? And so next week, move into that. Be thinking about the responses of those who see Jesus. What is our response to Jesus in our lives? Because he is always working and always moving and always speaking. And so what is our response to that? Let me pray. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word to us this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for sending your son to die for us and just for what that means. Lord, I pray that my friends would be able to spend time with you this week and just to sit at your feet, open our hearts and our minds to you. Lord, teach us your truth. Lord, I pray for those who are listening online that they would also find time to be with you. Thank you for teaching us, Lord, but thank you for pursuing us, for being constantly constant in our lives. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us in our going out and our coming in, that you would go ahead of us and behind us, and that you would bring us all back again here next week. Amen. Thank you, ladies.